are listening to a recording of Los Altos Institute's course, Wokeness as Religion. My name is Stuart Parker, and I am the instructor. So today, uh, we're going to be looking at um, essentially the idea of time consciousness. Uh, this is, um, can everybody hear me okay? Yes. Good, good. All right. Um, now, I rarely ever get to talk about what I actually did my PhD thesis on. That's just part of doing one of those. Uh, they're usually about something incredibly narrow and obscure. And uh, oddly, um, my uh, theory of uh, my work on time consciousness is extra obscure, we might say. Uh, at, uh, so I, um, I worked with, uh, Kenneth Mills, who was a, uh, very prominent, uh, historian of Latin America. And, um, we decided after I'd completed my thesis that we do a uh, panel at the American Historical Association Conference of 2012. Uh, so the American Historical Association typically gets about 10,000 people to its annual meetings. And the uh, meeting in Chicago in 2012 was no exception. 11,000 historians convened in Chicago. And I put together a panel uh, with Ken Mills um, Joseph Spencer, the um, most prominent um, uh, liberal Mormon philosopher uh, at the time, and Jorge Cañizares Esquera, who today is considered to be the greatest living historian of the Spanish Empire. And we got a big room, and we put this um, blue chip panel together. And uh, four people came. Uh, and that's because historians are not interested in time consciousness. Time consciousness is something that historians take for granted. And they find a very strange subject. They have a particular consciousness of time and have been strangely uninterested in examining how other people think about time. Uh, and I would say that this has constituted a, a, a terrible vulnerability uh, in uh, the academic world. The failure to study consciousness of time has meant that um, there's been no attempt to defend what I would call enlightenment or the age of reasons time consciousness, uh, that uh, everyone has been asleep at the switch as our society's consciousness of time has changed. So I wanna begin by talking about um, this, uh, the very category of time consciousness. Uh, as, uh, as with last episode, um, 
there is some work that I've done on this outside of this course that I've presented. And so I will be sending you guys a, um, an episode of a podcast that my friend Dan and I did trying to uh, explain time consciousness and alternative types of con time consciousness to um, a lay audience. So to summarize a little bit of that work, um, I want to talk, begin by talking about medieval art. Um, people talk a lot about how perspective consciousness vanished in the Middle Ages, how people had known how to draw and paint and sculpt with perspective in a photorealistic way. And in the Middle Ages, they lost that knowledge. Or that's the story we normally tell. I'm going to argue they abandoned that knowledge that you notice um, when you look at medieval art, uh, people are not, uh, there isn't that three-dimensional sense when you look into a two-dimensional painting that things that are further away are not smaller. Uh, that um, perspective lines don't exist, that the people you see in medieval art seem to live in a two-dimensional universe, uh, that the number of dimensions a painting uh, depicts is the same number of dimensions it has, and that there is no art of showing perspective. I want to argue today that we underplay how much of a conscious choice that is, or how much of a choice, how much that's rooted in ideology. To go back to a concept uh, I introduced in the first episode, the medieval episteme, the way that knowledge and power were ordered together in the Middle Ages, was different than the episteme of the ancient world. Uh, we all know that the Middle Ages featured a radical decentralization of political power, that um, we went from, uh, in Europe, having very large empires to having smaller states and uh, in which the monarchs had very little power and most power was held by feudal lords, barons, earls, those sorts of people. Uh, power was at a radically decentralized scale, and practices of making knowledge, holding knowledge, uh, these things also began to function very differently, even though the actual body of knowledge changed very little. Uh, in the Middle Ages, people used the same authoritative texts as people in the previous era, but they thought about those texts in very different ways. A particular theory of time, and here I'm going to begin by talking about the theory of elites, not people at the folk level, but 
a, uh, a particular theory of time, time came to hold sway in the Middle Ages uh, called typo, uh, typological time. Typological time was not invented in the Middle Ages. It just wasn't popular before the Middle Ages. Typological time is the idea well, in a way, it's a it's the modern thing that is most like it is something called chaos theory or complexity theory, a theory of aperiodic repetition. That event, the same events will happen again and again and again, but they will happen at different scales and different intervals. Uh, this theory of time. Um, today uh, is largely doesn't exist. Uh, technically, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Roman Catholic Church have canonized this theory of time, but neither church uses it to do history or think about time, really. Um, the idea of the typologists was that um, the Bible essentially functioned as um, not merely as a narrative of past events, but as a text that classified all past and future events. Uh, and it uh, and this idea originally was used by the Stoic movement in the Roman Empire. This was not originally a Christian idea. The Stoics were faced with a problem that we talked about last episode, the problem of the nation of philosophers, the problem, uh, the challenge that Judaism presented in the ancient world. And Judaism had... Um, was really the first movement to have a modern Enlightenment era theory of time. The idea of the Judeans, unlike the rest of the people in the ancient world, was that time was linear, it went in one direction, and it would end. It was simply a sequence of events and it was a story that God was telling. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end, and one day it would end. This was, um, now, of course, the other feature of the nation of philosophers of the Judeans was that they had a book about it. And their book told the, uh, the beginning and the middle of the story. The Torah was a narrative of events. And this idea that every philosophy should have a canonical text, a book about the world, was a big challenge for the Stoic movement. The Romans did not have, of the Romans generated a lot of compelling history, but they didn't have a compelling backstory. In, um, at the height of the Roman Empire, in fact, 
uh, the Imperium hired Virgil to write the Aeneid, to write, and they commissioned their origin myth for money because they didn't have one. Uh, and that helps to speak to the kind of insecurity, the kind of intellectual insecurity that the Roman Empire had at its zenith, that as confident as it was in its military power, in its um, science, in its economy, it lacked confidence in its own myths. So they had this problem, well, what's our canonical text? We, the Aeneid is not enough. Well, they decided that the Iliad and the Odyssey were their canonical texts. And the Iliad and the Odyssey are a great bloody read. And they're the same age as the Bible and the Vedas. There's lots of reasons that you'd want that to be your canonical text. The problem is it doesn't really teach any kind of moral theory of the world. It doesn't, it, it, they're great stories, but they're not like the Torah. The Torah, you, you have a sense that it's pedagogical. It's a set of instructions. It uses irony and things like that. Um, it's not like good things happen to good people in the Torah, but there's always an explanation for the bad things. Homer's authorial voice was really against that. Every time he thought someone was doing a really bad job of leadership, he'd refer to them as a, the shepherd of the people, as an ironic insult uh, to the mythological figure he was describing. So the Stoics had this essential problem. How can we dignify this text? How can we make it like the Torah or like the Vedas? The Vedas are a perfect example. Um, they tell the story of the same kind of insanity and savage slaughter that the Torah does, that the Iliad does. The difference is that the Vedas have a moral theory running through them, just like the Torah does, right? They, this is where the idea of yoga comes from. I've always found it quite strange as to who's attracted to yoga, because if you actually find the original use of the word in the Vedas, um, it's the part where uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna uh, goes to war and kills most of his relatives. And the argument that the Bhagavad Gita makes is that Krishna killed people so well, so artistically, so beautifully, that this act of fratricidal murder uh, was morally neutral. That doing something well morally elevates it and it makes it, it causes it to be shorn of the condemnation we would normally assign to it. So the Stoic movement containing the greatest minds of the Roman Empire at its height realized that if we were gonna make the Iliad and the Odyssey a text like the Torah or like the Vedas, we would have to develop an interpretive framework that would assign non-literal meanings. And they did. 
uh, this is the origin of typology. The argument that they made is that uh, the Iliad is a documentation of classes of event that the events in the Iliad have meaning because they predict future events. We don't know when those future events will happen, but we know structurally what they'll look like and how they'll turn out. And it's this stoic idea that the Christian uh, church father, Tertullian, stole that uh, Irenaeus uh, further amplified. Christians argued uh, because this is taking place when the Christians are leaving Judaism and becoming their own thing. They argue that their interpretation of the Torah is superior and that the Torah isn't really about its literal meanings. It is like the Iliad, um, a catalog of classes of event. Now, I know this is all sounding very abstract, so I'm going to give you an example. One of the, so Irenaeus, in applying historical typology to the Torah, argues that God had to order Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac because it prefigured typologically God's sacrifice of his own son. The arrested sacrifice in which Isaac is, seems to have been ordered to be killed and then is not killed is historically axiomatic. It's historically necessary in order to prefigure uh, God's arrested sacrifice of his own son. And this is how, and that this, this becomes the way that medieval people understand time. That the Bible is this list of episodes, and the way you look at the world is you check to see if any of the narrative structures in the Bible are repeating. And you need to check at different scales because sometimes the events repeat at a large scale, sometimes they repeat at a local scale and you don't know. But once you're in one of those events, it is full of meaning and has a predetermined outcome. This, um, this, way, uh, this way of thinking about the world is essentially about thinking, about seeing the similarity between times and places, seeing that there are actually very few things in the world that have not already happened and that will not happen again. That, um, that understanding uh, was very helpful for the medieval social order. And you can see its fingerprints on medieval art because not only does medieval art lack perspective, medieval art 
doesn't show any differences between past and present. Uh, when medieval people thought about the Roman Empire uh, and depicted it, um, there were knights wearing chainmail. Um, people had big crosses. Uh, no matter what time medieval artists depicted, it always looked like now. And it's not that medieval people lost the knowledge that things were different materially. They just didn't think that knowledge was important or useful. Um, so this is epitomized in uh, the play I'm gonna send you the podcast about, The Second Shepherd's Pageant. This is right at the end of medieval time consciousness in the 1420s. Um, the Corpus Christi miracle plays became strangely significant in the world. Um, the culture that would produce Shakespeare a century later came out of a bizarre um, feature of the medieval tax system, which I won't get into here. It's not especially relevant for our purposes. But it caused, it conscripted um, thousands of people into uh, doing community theater in order to raise money to dredge harbors to export wool. It was a very strange situation. Um, but the point was that um, probably 5% of the English population was conscripted into doing community theater and uh, in order to make the economy work. And we have this wonderful record of the plays they put on. The Second Shepherd's Pageant is the first British comedy. Um, it's, uh, it's a great play, it's worth reading. Um, and it, it functions as a kind of intersection between modern consciousness and medieval consciousness. The episteme is shifting in the 15th century. The way that power is distributed is changing. And this causes people's practices of attaining knowledge to change. So having a foot in both worlds, the Second Shepherd's Pageant is a very interesting work of literature that's been studied extensively. It's a story of three shepherds who um, are early victims of a process called enclosure. Enclosure is a process that made us modern. Uh, it was a violent process whereby in the medieval world, when you acquired land, you acquired the people on the land. Uh, a lord, a baron, an earl, uh, if he gained a new fief, if he gained a new piece of land, the people living there and farming were kind of his property. And he had a set of obligations to them under the feudal social contract. Um, he had to protect them from other violent men. And in return, um, the food they raised, 
uh, he got a cut of all that. Enclosure um, is about the beginning of the new class, the class that is in decline today, the, uh, the owner class uh, that is currently taking a pasting from the managerial class. The owner class, the gentry, did not have those obligations. When the Tudor monarchy took power in England, when the Dutch Republic overthrew the Dutch monarchy in the Netherlands, they introduced a new kind, a new way of owning land. And this way of owning land, you didn't buy the people with the land and you had no obligations to them. And this is crucial for the success of the wool boom. This is all generated because the price of wool has massively increased due to a climate downturn in the 14th century and changes in how people work with textiles in Europe. So the gentry can do something feudal lords cannot, which is evict the peasants from the land. And this is why in the 15th century, an obscure Kentish word becomes, spreads all through England, the word neighbor. What does neighbor mean? It means person who lives near me that I do not know and do not have a relationship with. Medieval villages and manors didn't need the word neighbor uh, because people stayed where they were because that's where their property rights were. That's where their homes were. People had other words for their associates. They had friends, they had gossips, a gossip being a person who has the same godparent as you. Lots of people were gossips because um, high status commoners, everybody would want to be the godparent of their child. And so millers and people like that might have dozens of godchildren uh, because you'd want the most prosperous commoner to have to look after your children if something happened to you. So there were gossips, there were friends, there, you know, there are all kinds of words for people you know, right? The guy who, um, the guy who gets drunk and takes off his clothes on the bridge. That's a thing to be in a medieval village. Uh, there are all sorts of kinds of people to be. Neighbor is a term that indicates a certain sort of anonymity, a certain kind of impermanence in a relationship. And that's because starting in the 15th century, the world began to fill up with neighbors as peasants were thrown off the land and the Tudor monarchy responded by criminalizing sleeping in the street, criminalizing begging, and increasing the penalties for highway robbery. Um, so you would be thrown off land and you would discover that just surviving was mostly illegal. You had an incredible economic impulse to find work somewhere. Thomas More describes this in his book, Utopia. He says, in most countries, 
men eat sheep. But in England, sheep eat men. People were evicted from their lands and replaced with sheep because the price of wool was high. Growing flax uh, to make linen um, was so much less profitable than raising sheep and shearing them for wool that um, the irony was that these landless people, these dispossessed, these dislocated people, the world's first neighbors, went to work as landless people looking after the sheep that had evicted them. One of the few areas of employment growth, there were two main areas of employment growth, working in ports to ship the wool out, and looking after the sheep, and I'm sorry, a third, processing the wool, carding the wool. The second shepherd's pageant is in some ways a very modern work uh, and a socialist work at that because it's a comedy about three shepherds who talk about the violence of enclosure, this radical change in the material relations of the society, that this is the first moment where you can see the class consciousness of the proletariat expressed in literature. They complain about enclosure, about the social order, about being landless people who are desperate. And this is the basis of the comedy. There is a fourth individual who is a criminal, who has the other job that became more popular in the 15th century. He's a hustler. He's a grifter. He's a thief. And he impersonates a shepherd and steals one of the sheep while the other three shepherds are asleep. And uh, this is a slapstick comedy uh, about a man trying to hide a sheep. Uh, and it, it, it holds up. You would laugh if it were put on today. Uh, anyway, he and his wife end up having to pretend the sheep is their baby. It's in a cradle. Everything goes terribly wrong. And you're thinking, wow, the sophistication, the analysis, the, the it's like, it's hard to believe a medieval person wrote this. They seemed so humorless. And, and unsophisticated in so, so much of their art. This must be a modern work. And that's what you think until the last page of the play. Because in the last page of the play, the Archangel Gabriel appears and invites the shepherds to witness the birth of Christ. That is emblematic of what, we re what I refer to as the all-now consciousness. That whatever differences appear to exist between past and present are collapsed. And this is fundamentally different from modern time consciousness. And I know that, that people often describe fundamentalism as atavistic, as primitive, as pointing backwards. 
fundamentalism is arguably um, the most modern time consciousness. There was no fundamentalism. There was no Islamic fundamentalism or Christian fundamentalism before the 18th century. There was no relationship of pure literalism with a text. Um, right, Wahhabism didn't come out of the Arabian desert. Sure, the most powerful Wahhabis today rule Saudi Arabia. But Wahhabism came out of Damascus. It came out of the urban Arab world. And our fundamentalism, um, as I, I've written at length elsewhere, uh, was developed by Texas and Oklahoma oil men in the 1920s and their journal, The Fundamentals. Fundamentalism, although it doesn't necessarily agree with what science, modern science says about the world in terms of physics or history. Um, it's not modern in that way, but it's modern in the sense that it believes in literalism and linear time and a, um, and a particular relationship to time. When a fundamentalist talks about the past, they form a dialectic. And when a fundamentalist talks about the past, they're comparing the past to the present and talking about how they are different, right? If a fundamentalist cites a section of the Bible, it's to show that we're not measuring up to what people in the past did to their moral virtue, to their continence, to their fidelity. Um, whenever fundamentalists use historical texts, it is about contrast. It is about going, things were this way then, things are this way now, that's not acceptable. This difference between the past and present, I'm not comfortable with it. Uh, there is no historical consciousness more modern than that. Um, and it is absolutely not how medieval people thought or like the kind of historical thought that is starting to emerge today where people have the problem of, well, how are things the same? How is the past, how are the past and the present essentially identical? That's the typological time consciousness. You're looking in the past, not for points of contrast, but for points of agreement. Uh, the greatest modern typologist is the uh, 20th century Mormon theologian, Hugh Nibley. Um, he is able to show at any time that anything that was going on right now had always been happening. Uh, not just in his writing, but uh, he would do spontaneous um, speeches. Uh, he addressed a Mormon Youth Association once and explained how Jesus' Youth Association had the same offices um, occupied by the same uh, kinds of people. So 
one of the signs that we have that we are moving out of enlightenment time consciousness, we're moving out of the age of reasons time consciousness, <coughs> is that the way that people are forming a dialectic between past and present is changing. Now, so this time I put our religious history at the beginning of uh, the talk and not at uh, the end. Uh, I'm now going to move into um, the modern era. And by, by that, I don't mean now. I mean the 1890s. But I want to check for questions or comments before I move to the next phase. You guys all right? Yep. Okay, here we go. Cheryl, sorry? Yes. Great. Thank okay. You. So progressivism. Um, in the first Gilded Age, I, I'm a fan of the American historian Tom Segru, uh, who argues that in some ways material, we are living materially, we're living through the second Gilded Age. Mark Twain named the period after the American Civil War and before the First World War, the Gilded Age, uh, a kind of counterfeit golden age, as it were. Uh, and since the end of the Cold War, in many ways, we have been materially re-entering the Gilded Age. We have this thing we call neoliberalism, but there's nothing new about it. It's the restoration of original liberalism from the uh, late 19th century. It's about free trade, deregulation, and everybody being uh, paying for everything on installment plans because nobody has any money. This desperate attempt to stretch consumer spending while immiserating and impoverishing working class people. Uh, so... Uh, we may be in the second Gilded Age, and that may be why um, progressivism is similarly reverting to its original form. So progressivism is a type of time consciousness, first and foremost. Um, the progressive movement that emerges in the 1890s um, is associated with a bunch of things. And again, we see a lot of echoes of this today. Progressives, because they were classical liberals, believed that the government owning lots of things was wrong. But at the same time, they believed that things like elections and markets, free elections and free markets, were disorderly. They produced instability. And progressives sought to reform those things in various ways by, whereas trust busters like Teddy Roosevelt would try and break up big corporations, um, the reality is that Teddy Roosevelt was a progressive. He was, after all, the founder of America's second progressive party and ran for it in 1924, uh, not 1924, sorry, 1916. Uh, 1912. Anyway, uh, Teddy Roosevelt 
was a progressive. And what that meant was that he was far less interested in busting the trusts than he was in creating regulated monopolies. The belief was that there were natural monopolies in the world, telecom companies, railways, things like that. And you couldn't socialize them. The public couldn't own them. That would be wrong. So what you needed to do was regulate them more to actually increase the concentration of ownership and then have the state co-manage these giant assets. Uh, so that was a key part of progressivism. The progressives also invented what's called commission government. That's why when your city changes mayors, very few other things change because progressives believe that knowledge came from science. In this way, they were able to, and that therefore we should be governed by a technocracy that while we might want the people to have a bit of a say, really the experts should be running the show. And so the progressives remade municipal government. They got rid of the corruption and chaos of ward systems. They created at-large voting systems in order explicitly, as they said at the time, to reduce voter turnout. Voter turnout was a problem in the eyes of progressives uh, because it produced chaos like the free market did. And what we needed was order. And if there was one single thing progressives stood for, it was order. Progressives were able to create big coalitions because if you believe that, that big decisions should be made by experts rather than by regular people, there was a tremendous sense of confidence in the progressive era that science would ultimately discover your ideology was correct. Free market uh, capitalists and Marxists could join progressive coalitions because both groups believed that science would ultimately vindicate them. That if we just gave power to the scientists, to the social scientists, um, they, we would win in the end. They would discover using the scientific method that our idea was right. So progressivism was a great way of building large coalitions, kicking decisions down the road, and reducing the power of elections and markets. Uh, progressives had a theory of time to go with this to, as part of the progressive episteme. Um, they, you can see this in um, late 19th century and early 20th century encyclopedias. Um, where there's a number, what looks like a number line, and it's a set of drawings of people. Uh, it starts with cavemen. Uh, and it says something like a million years ago. And then it goes 10,000 years ago. Negroes. Uh, and next to Negroes, we have... Uh, Indians, and next to Indians, we have Indians. And next to those Indians, we have Chinamen. 
And next to those, and it's a year, there's a year for each thing. And of course, when you get to 1900, the present, it's Germans and Englishmen. All cultural difference, all differences among peoples was understood to be differences of time. No one was really different from anyone else. They were just you earlier. That inevitably and inexorably, people would evolve and become uh, modern Englishmen wearing top hats. Uh, that's just how everything was going to go. The problem for progressives was how to accelerate time, how to go to a place like um, Cameroon and, and, and accelerate people's evolution into themselves. Uh, so, uh, so there's an underlying assumption here that is going to box progressivism uh, in our era a catastrophic flaw in progressive time consciousness. Progressive time consciousness has no explanation for anything getting worse. Because progress is axiomatic. It's baked into the universe. We might be able to accelerate progress, but how do we explain something being good and it going away. We can't. Uh, progressivism became really the underlying assumption of the big progressive coalitions. And they're basically, uh, <clears throat> progressive coalitions are essentially uh, coalitions of things that think of themselves as the left. Um, they're liberal-led coalitions, but given that Marxism has a similar developmental theory where things are going to advance from here to here to here in a completely predictable way, that time is moving in one direction and making things better, um, this is, this is what underwrote the popular front coalitions that Stalin ordered his communist parties to create throughout the democratic world. These grand coalitions of liberals, progressives, and socialists. These coalitions were all premised on this belief that um, the world was getting better because it was getting more advanced, that time was simply solving our problems for us. And during the, in the social order in which I grew up, that didn't seem obviously wrong. Men and women were becoming more equal. Disparities of wealth and income were flattening. Democracy was spreading. Literacy was spreading. Scientific knowledge was spreading. We even believed in this ridiculous thing called the secularization thesis. We believed that we weren't even going to need God anymore. 
we believed that God was becoming obsolete, that the world was rejecting God in favor of science. Yet by the late 1970s, you know, when I'm, you know, I'm only seven years old in 1979, this theory really stops explaining reality. Ronald Reagan, the Ayatollah Khomeini, these guys, they're tied to each other. We couldn't have had President Reagan without the Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, and the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, couldn't have achieved what he did without Reagan. Um, both leaders um, are part of what um, the French uh, philosopher uh, Jacques Capel refers to as the revenge of God, the revanche de Dieu, that in the late 20th century, all kinds of things come back. Chief among them, God in politics, but all kinds of other things start changing. <clears throat> Men and women start getting less equal. America starts getting more segre racially segregated. The income disparities between black and white increase. The income disparities between men and women increase. The state starts shrinking and selling off parts of itself. All of these things that progressives believed were axiomatic, that, that all of these things that we thought about the world, that it was gonna grow more orderly and more fair, that it was gonna grow less magical and more scientific. That doesn't explain the last 40 years. And that, ha, that and this, this reversal of all of these indicators that progressives had associated with progress produced a very strange feedback effect. Uh, we, how can you keep being a progressive when you see um, the physical environment degrading, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, one democracy after another turning into an authoritarian state. How, how do we process that? Well, I think we're living with the consequences of progressive time consciousness. We're seeing its Janus face. We're seeing how progressivism turns on itself in bad times. Progressivism fundamentally is an ideology for good times. It is not an ideology for bad times. So progressivism, and I didn't used to believe this, right? I, uh, it's, Many of the beliefs that I attack in this course are beliefs that I myself held. Um, <clears throat> I was never a full-on progressive. I always thought it was crazy um, to think that there was a pattern to good times and bad times, and that there were rules about when good times happen and when bad times happened. I always felt that was essentially random. 
but I was certainly sucked into the progressive worldview, its time consciousness, and the consequences of that. Uh, and so I used to think that conservatives had staged the culture war. I thought it was their fault. Um, the term culture war is very problematic. I use it advisedly here, and I will issue a disclaimer for my use of the term. The term culture war is one of the most embedded misogynistic ideas in our society because it's a description of, it's, it's a category that describes issues that are supposedly immaterial and cultural. And in fact, what it describes are issues that are immaterial and cultural for men. Abortion is a material issue for women. It's not an abstract cultural issue for women. Rapists in women's prisons is not the culture war. That's a material experience incarcerated women are having of being raped and killed. Uh, so the term culture war is a very problematic term. But we enter into the culture war because of progressive time consciousness. Because of neoliberalism, we can't use the spending power of states to fix things. And we can't erect economic boundaries around the states for them to fix things. If there's a problem in the world, it's a problem in your country. Uh, because you can't erect big barriers to migration or investment or spending or ownership. So what can you work on? Well, gay marriage. We can work on that. That's a thing we can do. And so the optic of progressives begins to narrow. Progressives become obsessed with issues where they can report progress because they can't explain anything where there isn't progress. Progressives can't care about the industrial working class and the collapse of its income, the collapse of its infrastructure and education, the loss of people's retirement schemes as, as pension funds are broken up and sold off. Progressives can't do anything about that because we're in a neoliberal world and these things are just being sheared away. Progressives have to focus on culture, things that you can make rules about without your country spending any money or confiscating anyone's property or moving anything around at a material level. That's why the Green Party is completely obsessed with gender because they can't do anything about the environment and they refuse to. In the four budgets, the Green Party of British Columbia, there have been 164 budgets in the history of British Columbia, 164 government budgets. In the four the BC Green Party voted for, those four budgets contain over half of all of the fossil fuel subsidies ever issued in the 164 years. Uh, the Green Party votes voted, uh, the BC Green Party voted to double 
coal exports by 2050, double raw log exports by 2050, voted to uh, increase fracking every year they voted for a budget. That's the material world. Um, they can't do anything about that. They, there's an element of cowardice, of course, there. I uh, have certainly indict progressives for being cowards. But honestly, if, you know, we Canadians lived in Latin America, we would understand very clearly that, um, and I guess at some level we do, that if we stop shipping out the coal and the raw logs and the fracked gas, American troops would come because that's what happens in Latin America when they do that. We're subject to the same Monroe Doctrine those countries are. But at least people in Chile will, will periodically give it a go. But they understand that the hammer will come down. The only thing British Columbia has tried to do on that front was create an aluminum hulled shipbuilding industry in the 1990s. And that's considered to be the greatest scandal in BC politics in the 20th century. Greenpeace and the BC Chamber of Mines went on speaking tours in Europe, denouncing our efforts to industrialize, to develop some level of economic self-sufficiency. Because uh, that's where the money was, that's where all the incentives pointed. So the problem of progressivism is that it has to anoint the present. And as the present keeps getting shittier, as people have fewer freedoms, less disposable income, as the forests are too quiet and your windshield is too clean, because the bugs are gone, the birds are gone. Um, progressives, in order to sustain their time consciousness, now need to redescribe the past in order to make the present better than it. And that is where we get the brilliant, horribly cynical progressive nationalism of Justin Trudeau. If we can just turn our ancestors into black-hatted villains, if we can just turn the past into a charnel house of genocide and racism, then the present looks pretty good. We're progressing. The progressive mandate has succeeded. But what this entails is an endless redescription of the past as worse than we thought it was. And as, as these descriptions of the past become harder to sustain in the face of reason and knowledge, that knowledge, that reason has to be attacked as well. That's why Terry Glavin could go from being the journalist who exposed the abuses of the residential schools who was beloved by indigenous people all over British Columbia 
for telling their story, for exposing these atrocities. That's why Terry Glavin today is called a residential school denialist and a member of the alt-right and a racist, an anti-indigenous racist, because he is interested in evidence. If there are mass graves that are unmarked, he wants to find the bones. He wants to do DNA analysis and figure out who was killed and how. And that does not fit with progressivism. Progressives are terrified of knowing that their ancestors were not as bad as they claim because that would entail taking responsibility in the present and recognizing that there are many ways in which the present is inferior to the past. At the end of the Qing dynasty in China, when China had gone into irreversible structural decline, when it went from being the world's first superpower into being a backwater uh, controlled by local warlords, um, there was a massive map destruction movement. China's territory was contracting. And rather than confront the structural causes of the territorial contraction, the Qing court burned the maps showing that the territory had contracted. And we're very much, and we're very much living in a map burning moment. We are burning any knowledge that tells us that things are deteriorating. And progressives are central in that project. Now, progressives are of course up against another time consciousness Neo-traditionalism. Um, now there are neo-traditionalist progressives. Um, most indigenous people are not progressives, right? Indigenous people in Canada are the second most Christian group of people in the country. Uh, and they tend to have, you know, and are overrepresented in the working class. Uh, progressivism offers them little. But indigenous people who are progressives are almost always members of religions that have never existed. Uh, they're trying to recreate, a, they're creating a new religion essentially, um, which is kind of a hodgepodge of past religions and sort of Christian millennialism. Uh, and we, we, we like those neo-traditionalists because they're, they often ally with us on environmental questions. Um, it tends to be indigenous aristocrats who like neo-traditionalism because it's, an, it's they, we allegedly, the land back movement, what, what does the land back movement stand for? It stands for restoring the feudal title of indigenous aristocrats to the land that their family had once ruled. We like that. I mean, it's not really going to happen, but that's, uh, that's a thing we could aspire to. We have no message for indigenous commoners. We have no message for indigenous slaves. They're part of, uh, more often than not, the other neo-traditionalist movement. And if there's one thing that is the, the, the most neo-traditionalist slogan uh, was coined by Reagan, repeated by Trump make America great again. 
Um, so there are progressives whose slogan effectively is you've never had it so good. And they're up against neo-traditionalists who want to take us back to an imagined, an imaginary past in which a bunch of things we've never had are restored to this previous ideal. But fundamentally, these, the, our main political disagreement is between two kinds of false consciousness about time. One, that things are always getting better, that we are better people, that we are the best people who have ever lived. And everyone, everyone who lived before 1989 is a piece of shit. Or there's some world, whether for indigenous aristocrats, it's the 1720s, or for MAGA Republicans, it's the 1950s, there's some, some ideal era in the past that we can somehow return to, despite it never having existed in the first place. So this is, um, so what's happening is that progressive time consciousness, because progressives are post-political, they don't solve political problems, Right, politics is about forming a big coalition of people that you mostly disagree with on other stuff, figuring out what you do agree with them about and trying to use democratic means to get it done. Uh, that's, that's politics. Post-politics is the opposite. It's about making your coalition as small as possible by rooting out all of the impurities and either forcing people to misrepresent their beliefs or throwing them out of the coalition, and then using the coalition not to achieve political ends, but to figure out whose fault things are and hurt them at an interpersonal level. Uh, this, as I explained last episode, is happening in trade unions, right? The main activity of trade unions is members of the unions blaming and hurting each other and uh, the main activity of our political parties. I mean, look at, uh, look at uh, what the NDP has been up to lately. Um, they got an agreement to give dental care to low-income adults like me. The liberals violated the agreement. Um, applied dental care only to baby teeth. There's a reason for that, obviously. Um, the bourgeoisie will not tolerate losing the ability to detect someone's class by looking at their teeth. Uh, so of course the government's willing to fix baby teeth and just not adult teeth. Uh, so uh, the NDP has been betrayed and what are they doing about it? They are fundraising on the 300 neo-Nazi hate groups in Canada. You need to sign the NDP's petition to take away these people's, these groups' freedom of speech, to punish the people in these groups. Um, I've asked, uh, the Western Standard's working on a news story about this right now, whether this institute is one of the 300 neo-Nazi hate groups that the NDP is fundraising about, because all indicators indicate that it is. Uh, 
you know, I'm a notorious child molester and hate criminal, according to the New Democratic Party. So uh, why not this? In this post-political world, what we see across the board, whether it's the People's Party of Canada or the New Democratic Party of Canada, there's an unwillingness to apply a modern, rational, enlightenment concept of time. Either the past is where we're going, uh, which is what you associate with the Trumpian right, uh, and, and Pol Pot. Pol Pot really was the, 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 the guy who, uh, who uh, started that. His, uh, he redefined revolution uh, in uh, Cambodia as return to the past. Uh, or either you're returning to the past or you're annihilating it. You're destroying it. And you're arguing that it was some kind of terrible hellscape against which you can positively compare the present to prove that progress is real to prove that there is this axiomatic force guiding us in history, that we don't really have to do the work of politics to make the time and place in which we live a good place. We just need to let history unfold and produce ever better people. That's why no one asks if, 4% of the population are going to kill themselves unless they get gender reassignment surgery. Where is that 4% in every generation prior to this one? Where are all the dead trans people? Uh, if 4% if if of the population is born in the wrong body and will die if they're not put in a different one, there should be whole cemeteries full of previous generations of trans people who couldn't get these operations. But that is not the kind of question that progressive time consciousness even permits now. Progressivism can't ask real questions about the past for fear of what the answer might be, for fear that the answer to a question about the past might negatively rather than positively comment on the present. So uh, that's today's rant. Um, questions and comments. I have one. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw um, a post that you did and Terry Glavin did um, on Twitter about um, a video that was done by uh, Poliev. Mm -hmm. And the comment that... Um, Terry Glavin said, uh, whether you like him or not, blah, 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 mm -hmm. that this would be right from the 19, uh, 19, this could situate itself in the 1930s and the, um, on the prairies. And I'm wondering if that video, it's, it's powerful in that it kind of contrasts where he's, his thing is saying things are broken. And to what you're arguing, that um, progressives never see anything, um, have, am I getting this right? Um, 
now is a good time, but if you, like you were saying about the question, that video raises a question that no, it's, it's not. So how, how does that kind of work itself out in, in our dialogue here? Uh, Polly Ever is a fascinating figure. I would say he is a uniquely Canadian figure in his awfulness because he is a master of rhetoric and he's a very smart man. Polly Ever is incredibly talented at taking neo-traditionalist rhetoric and using it to justify the Canadian policy consensus. Pierre Polly Ever doesn't want to change anything. Um, he, the only thing he wants to do is get rid of the carbon tax. He's otherwise completely in accord with Trudeau on every major policy issue before the country. But Polly Ever is smart in that he knows how to mimic the discourse of the Bannonite right elsewhere, right? He won the leadership of the Tory party using the Brexit slogan. I was, I was totally enamored of that slogan. I used it in my disastrous short-lived school board by-election campaign, take back control. Ah, uh, what, a, what a brilliant, brilliant thing to say. We need to take back control. And it's classic neo-traditionalism because it suggests that in the past we had a level of control we really didn't. But at the same time, it uses the difference between past and present to project a future. And Polyevra, um, I would argue that there are so many layers to uh, Polyevra's uh, everything's broken. Uh, line um, and that the, the everything's broken strategy everything feels broken um, is one that he stole from Bernie Sanders um, Bernie Sanders in one of the most effective ads ever um, is Bernie Sanders America ad where it has it, it's a beautiful intertextual piece of artistry because um, I mean, I cried when I saw the ad. Um, it's so Simon and Garfunkel hate each other, right? They despise each other to their bones. And um, Bernie had to get both of them to agree um, for him to use this ad. And so already there's all this meaning packed into the ad because you're looking at the reconciliation of Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, these people who we want, desperately want to be friends, whose relationship we thought was irreparably broken, and yet here's this ad. But they, what Bernie did was he cut out crucial lyrics that all the seniors in Iowa who watched that ad during the Iowa caucuses, what they would have heard from the ad were the words that were missing because it's deliberately choppily edited when he cuts the lyrics out because it's reminding you that there are words that the ad is missing. And what the words are is, uh, uh, the, the words are, Kathy, I'm lost, I said, though I knew she was sleeping. I'm empty and aching and I don't know why. And uh, that's the sentiment on which Sanders played. 
Polyevra's reiteration of everything's broken, I, a part of its efficacy is that it's referencing a famous Tom Waits song, probably his most popular. And what's missing? The sentence that precedes everything's broken? No one speaks English and everything's broken. That's, that's the line that Polly Ever is summoning up in the minds of his listeners when he reiterates that phrase. Now, there are non-Tom Waits fans who are just looking at the world and going, yeah, everything's broken. We're living in the fucking Brezhnev era, right? Like this is, this is so like the Soviet Union under Leonid Brezhnev. This is, is insistence that you've never had it so good. There is no alternative. And yet all the systems are collapsing around you. I remember there's this, this story um, in uh, there, you know, a uh, journalist from the West is in Moscow and he goes to this sausage factory and all the employees are on the floor drinking vodka, uh, unable to stand, they're so drunk. And there's a conveyor belt that's supposed to be covered in sausages, but there's only one sausage on the conveyor belt and it has a nail in it. And they're all pointing at the sausage and laughing. I think that Polyevra is totally grabbing that as well. I mean, I don't know if you tried to buy anything at Canadian Tire recently, but sometimes the employees are all on the floor uh, and they're all so high they can't deal with you. Um, you know, there's people aren't going to work. People would rather do anything than, um, uh, than do shit work in this country because, because there's a sense that this is going nowhere that um, this is the end of the parade. So I think Polyever is incredibly effective rhetorically. I think he's a rhetorical genius. Um, what's amazing is that in any other country, he would be leading a movement of people who were trying to change things. He would be leading an actual political movement that wanted to cancel NAFTA, that wanted to, uh, you know, it doesn't even matter. The point is that people in any other country who use Polyevra's rhetoric actually want to do something. He has simply figured out the rhetorical code. Yeah, sure. So you started uh, talking about art and um, it seems to me uh, when you were talking about uh, things are broken and, and the line above it in the uh, wait song, it's like you need the negative space and the positive space to understand art and boundaries. So um, what he's doing now makes a lot more sense to me because it's a negative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think he will, um, I don't know. I'm not actually sure that how we vote in the next federal election will determine who the prime minister is. I don't know when the permanent state of emergency will begin. <laughs> Canadians, I mean, Justin Trudeau got 70% of the population on side for using the War Measures Act to shut down a tailgate party. Um, uh, so who knows when um, we're going to... You know, and of course, the woke are constantly fighting for democracy and for freedom through censorship and election rigging and things like that. So there's this sense that uh, 
you know, of course, we, we may have to cancel the election to save democracy. Uh, but I think that if we have a, a free election, um, Paul Everell clobber Trudeau. Um, he, and then there'll be tremendous buyer's remorse as we watch every significant Trudeau policy continue. Uh, we've really had a complete policy consensus in this country since the late 1980s, since the moment Jean Chrétien um, brought the Liberal Party on side with NAFTA. Uh, once we got there, um, this has largely been a show. And I mean, I love the show, but I realize that I follow elections now the way other people follow professional sports. Um, I like the minutia. I like the statistics, but I don't think my life will be affected by whether the Canucks win. Uh, I, uh, I think that, um, that fantasy is, uh, structural things would need to take place for elections to matter again. We switched, we switched our legal procedures to a managed democracy and no one cared. And Sean fucking Holman, who was supposed to be the guardian, I mean, anyone, any, every, if there's one thing I've learned in the woke moment, it's that every self-appointed guardian is lying. Uh, anybody who says they're the guardian of the free press or free elections, they're going to be the first people to turn against the free press and free elections. Uh, that uh, I... I we we made, made a mistake in taking people at their word. And I... And when I say we, I mean progressives. I, I don't think, I think one of the, the, one of the things uh, that is attractive about the conservative mindset is its suspicion. Uh, I think there's a greater inherent suspicion. And that's why Polly Ever has to do a better job than someone like Trudeau to actually consolidate sus the votes of suspicious people at a time when everyone should be suspicious is, um, it's a challenge. Uh, other uh, questions, comments? Francisco. Um, yeah, well, I was just uh, hoping you could help me digest a couple of things. Um, just a couple of points that I wrote down as, as uh, you were talking. It seems to me that you know, what, what you said at the beginning was a little bit of, uh, if I understand correctly, the sort of metaphorical time versus scientific time. And and um, it seems to me, uh, from my perspective, that there was a certain victory that was achieved by scientific thought and scientific measurement uh, with the advent of the atomic clock. And mm. when we figured out that we could apply voltage to a quartz crystal and get a, an actual scientific you know, it was the it was the victory of sort of like a trans or not transhuman is is not, maybe not the right word, but a non-human understanding of the passage of or the decay of you know or, or how how electricity and voltage went through that uh, that quartz crystal. Um, it so it's it was like the you know with metaphorical time and scientific time, it seemed to me it. It, it, it would seem to me perhaps that there was once we achieved a way of getting past the human mind 
that there was a certain victory in in uh, how we argued about time or how we conceived about time. Um, so I, I wonder, when I think about, I'm certainly not a time specialist um, or indeed a specialist in metaphorical time, in the history of metaphorical time, but it, it seemed to me that, that there was an achievement once we were able to unhumanize the un, or get outside of the the human mind and that conception um i would i would kind of put that forward um also i don't think i don't you made a statement about progressives um and i think a lot of progressives are non-scientific as well um i was i was just trying to remember how you how how you said that but i would just from my experience, a lot of progressives are, are very non-scientific um, and incorporate communities that, that, that lean towards more metaphorical time, as, as you suggested. Um, the, when you made the statement about, I'm sorry, I have a, a bunch of notes here. I won't go on and on forever. Yeah. But you made the statement about fundamentalism not existing before the 18th century. So I, I think of groups like the Almoravids or the Almohads that pursued uh, a path and the, and the Reconquista in Spain. And I, I tend to focus on it a lot, but um, in my trying to understand things, but it seemed to me that though the Almoravids and the Almohads were in, in an example of a fundamentalist wave that swept through um, the Iberian Peninsula specifically, um, unless I'm wrong, I'm certainly, you know, well, I, it, it, I it depends on our definition of fundamentalism, right? Okay. And and my my and so I have a particular definition of fundamentalism. There are many revitalization movements that preceded fundamentalism, where people said, "Let's get back to the text. Let's get back to the basics. Let's get back to the fundamentals." Um. And uh, fundamentalism is a subset of that. There are lots of religious revitalization movements that seek to remove accretions of culture and meaning on top of a text or on top of an original movement. And I, I, would, I, would, I would suggest that fundamentalism um, is more than that. It's a, it's a denial of interpretation. I would argue that revitalization movements go, your interpretation is wrong, my interpretation is right. What fundamentalism is, it's a, it arises from a particular culture of literacy that developed in the Middle East and the United States in the 18th century, where and, and oh, I, I'm sorry, and also in the Niger Basin in the 18th century, where people's relationship to literacy was different, where people learned to read outside of an institutional framework. And this then produced a denial of culture and institutions as part of literacy that there was a plain meaning 
a plain reading that required no interpretation. And fundamentalism is a denial of interpretation. It's, this says what it says, period. I'm not a better interpreter than you or a worse interpreter than you. The text speaks for itself, unmediated by humans. And I think that um, if you're doing Islam and you're doing canonical Islam, you already have that tension between the Hadiths and the Quran. Um, unless you decanonize all the Hadiths, you can't really do full-on fundamentalism. And that, that, that's, of course, at the center of Wahhabism is the decanonization of the Hadiths. Um, and similarly, right, fundamentalists will never write the City of God or Summa Theologica or uh, any of those synthetic texts because they don't think they need them because the Bible is sufficient. Uh, so I, so I, anyway, that, that's the definition of fundamentalism I'm working with. It, it may be a narrower definition, um, but I, I don't see that in the Iberian Peninsula in the 15th century, as much as everybody is in favor of, as they say in Canticle for Leibowitz, the great simplification, uh, whether they're Christians right. or Muslims. Okay, and, and one last thing here before I make room for other folks. Um, so, and in specifically to Marxists um, the, and the conception of time, I, I would, because there's a, quite a lot that's written by Marxists uh, about the counter-revolution or the, you know, there's revolution and then there's always forces of counter-revolution and the, and the moving, moving that and, and to expect that that certain forces whether you know the the white russians or or whoever are going to once the uh, revolution is moderately achieved that there is going to be a, a pushback and a counter-revolution to move that dial back again to to the way things were before so i guess i wanted to when you said and i'm trying to remember exactly how you said it but marxists in terms of how how they see that sort of onward marching revolution as a, a politically scientific force that is always going and repeatable and can be and can be tweaked scientifically um, and always going forward I, th I think I think the Marxists also understand that that there are forces of counter-revolution that will try to bring you back to serfdom that will try to bring you back to uh, the the old traditional uh, modalities that seem to have some functionality previous to to their revolution um this is this is a very helpful intervention here because it it, it helps to explain the total failure of marxism in the present um right i'm uh, i have a the, the marxists used to have an epithet um for people like me revisionists the belief that there was something Marx and Engels missed, that Marx, Engels, and Lenin are supposed to have been able to guess everything. In this way, we can see how um, Marxism is an offshoot of rabbinic Judaism, that this is ultimately a Talmudic relationship to texts. 
uh, I was in a very, one of the highlights of my political, my ridiculous political life uh, took place in 1997 when I was invited to the communist candidates debate in the riding of Vancouver East. The NDP refused to attend. It was held at La Quena, the uh, Sandinista Solidarity Cafe, a nonprofit of the drive. I, I think the death of La Quena, followed by the total capitulation of the Sandinista movement, should tell us something interesting about the left. So I was the Green Party's candidate in Vancouver East in 97, and I showed up for this debate. And the debate represented, uh, and I don't remember many of the people, but there was the candidate for socialist challenge, the Trotskyites, socialist action, which was a splinter group from socialist challenge. Uh, there was the communist party uh, representing, of course, Stalinism, the Marxist-Leninist party representing the thinking of Enver Hoxha, the dictator of Albania, um, and Jaggi Singh from the Anarchist Destroy Your Ballot Committee. And other, Jaggi Singh and I were exceptions in the room because under everybody else's chair was a stack of books with sections that had been carefully bookmarked. And the sections of the books, um, so the Trotskyites had the most books under their chairs. They had Marx, Engels, and Trotsky, and Lenin. The Enver Hoxha people, the, the Marxist-Leninists, had Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, and Verhoja. Um, the, uh, the, the Communist Party had Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin. Uh, and everybody had these different texts under their chairs to, 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 because they could then recite chapter and verse how the world was like rabbis in a Talmudic scholars circle. Um, the greatness of Marxism is also its Achilles heel. It's rabbinic Judaism without God. Um, it's all the disputational practices that made Jews smarter than other people in the Middle Ages. Their ability to, to debate rationally based on a shared set of canonical texts. Um, this was, I mean, people were always trying to kill them for God's sake. They survived. They, that's because they, they outsmarted everyone and they, they, they developed this thing that Marx then uses and that his movement inherits with no knowledge of what it has inherited. But the problem is what happens when the book doesn't guess what's going to happen? What happens when there's something outside the structure? And I'm a revisionist. And if Marx were alive today, he would look at Thomas Piketty's last book and go, shit, I missed something. The super manager is a thing. The commissar class is a thing. Materialist analysis has discovered that the battle between the proletariat and the, and the, and, and the bourgeoisie is not the final battle. 
I was right, Marx would acknowledge, that the bourgeoisie did take over the entire material world. But my assumption that that meant that this would lead to the Ragnarok of capitalism was wrong because what the commissar class figured out is that there is a new frontier. It's the human mind, the commodification of the human mind. And that is the force that took over all the Marxist revolutions in Eastern Europe. The force that realized that when the material world gives out, the next frontier is the control of the human mind, that you can commodify it, you can sell it, you can control it, and your ability to control human minds radically amplifies or reduces things in the material world. Uh, social media is simply a technology for amplifying the insights Eric Honecker had as the dictator of East Germany about where the frontier is and where the battle is located. The bourgeoisie have no idea how to control people's minds, but the managers they hired did. That's all management is, is mind control. And so go ahead, Francisco. Uh, but wasn't wasn't Stalin also a revisionist then? If you know, oh, yeah. no, no, said, ev everyone we, we don't have revisionist. to tie ourselves to Marxist Leninism. That you know these these rules of Marxist Leninism, we can we can now go beyond Marxist Leninism. Uh, I mean, that was yeah. No, no, every everyone who's accused anyone of being a revisionist is a revisionist. Uh, <laughs> that's part of the nature of the commissar class. The commissar class, because they're in the mind control business, are engaged in involuntary acts of projection all the time. Uh, so yeah, of course, of course, all of the Orthodox Marxist texts are revisionist. Uh, revi the, the, who gets called a revisionist was about power it was never about the relationship to the text. So um, I know there are some questions you asked that I haven't answered uh, because these digressions are so, well, they're so fruitful. Um, there's a lot to get through here. Um, and thank you. You know, as they say in the Big Lebowski, um, my thinking had got very uptight. Uh, over the past three years during the cancellations. So one of the reasons you're getting these overlong answers is that uh, this brain has really not been working the past three years. And finally, it's been let out of the shed. Let uh, it all out. There we go. <laughs> so um, other questions and comments? Oh, I forgot to tell you the punchline of the meeting. That's where I was going. Um, now, the punchline of the meeting is presages other parts of the course. So you would think that Jaggy Singh and I, the only people with no books under our chairs, would have uh, been just annihilated in uh, the debate with all of the educated communists at Lacana in 1997. But, and I'm the villain in this story, I wanna be very clear. Um, here's what happened. Someone asked a question about indigenous rights. 
someone asked a question about uh, the land question in BC and the lack of treaties. And this immediately dissolved into a debate between the Maoists and the Trotskyites. The Trotskyites argued that indigeneity was a form of false consciousness of the working class, that there was no indigeneity, there were no hereditary rights, and uh, largely, I think the Trotskyites were right. Um, they, uh, I, I don't know why anyone would want to be an exhibit in our museum. Um, and uh, it's pretty upsetting. Uh, and that's largely what indigenous neo-traditionalists have agreed to do. We will give them power in exchange for being exhibits in our museum. But God help them if they go to church. Right? We made that clear two years ago. I mean, I grew up uh, with people from the Black Freedom Struggle. And I, I can't forgive the left for this. I cannot forgive them for the KKK style church burnings because that's what they did. Their response to the discovery of those graves that they had forgotten about, that were outside the windows of indigenous people who had never forgotten about them, was not to help indigenous people. It was to police the narrative. It was to say, if you don't pick up your drum and put on your headdress, you will be destroyed by fire. Uh, indigenous people in the community I was living in were sleeping in their churches, guarding them, uh, waiting for the white people to come and burn their church. Um, and having known people who were in the second march on Selma, I can't let that go. Um, you, you burn a racialized group's churches and cheer for the church burnings? You're the clan now. That's what you are. So um, anyway, back in 1997, I'm, I'm at this, um, I'm at this uh, debate at Lacana, and it gets to me. And the Maoists are arguing that, no, the indigenous people are the only peasants, and that Mao's revision of Marxism was that the peasants, not the proletariat, drive the revolution. So there's this debate between the Trotskyites going, indigeneity is false consciousness, and the Maoists going, um, the indigenous people are the only true peasants, so they must lead the revolution. And what did I do? I said, well, actually, um, you know, I don't feel qualified to answer this question. Uh, and that's uh, because uh, this is really about indigenous people speaking for themselves. Um, three of our five candidates in Vancouver are indigenous women. And spontaneously, our Vancouver Quadra candidate, Kelly White, emerged from the crowd with a neo-traditionalist drum. And she began drumming and singing in Hulkamalum. And it brought the house down. Everybody was convinced that I had won the debate, that there was this deus ex machina where Kelly White is dancing around, playing with the drums, singing in a language no one understands. And it didn't take me long to figure out how I was the villain there. Uh, I was on the bus home when I realized, was my rebuttal? But I have an Indian, and now she will dance. Uh, that 
was this really about me giving voice to indigenous people, to being some connective thing? No, this was um, what the reason progressives liked what I did was it showed that I had, I, a white man, had control of an indigenous woman, that I, I had power over this woman, that she was part of my act. And uh, I, that's really the, it was a very important moment. I was 25 years old at the time. And I just thought, what a, was what I did a deft act of colonialism? And did I get a standing ovation because I was the best colonizer? Because I offered no argument. The argument was delivered in a language no one knew. Other questions, comments? So in, in the early 70s, there was a Roman Catholic church in Seashell, BC that was burned <clears throat> or caught fire. And I have the article from, from the early 70s. And there was a lot of talk that it was the Seashell that themselves had burned down the church because there was also a, a, uh, a school there, a residential school, um, that had caused a lot of pain. And so there was a lot, there were a lot of people who, nobody ever claimed responsibility. It was blamed on kids trying to smoke cigarettes. But if you read the article, you, it's a really good cross section of the early seventies, um, at that time, uh, with a residential school and the Roman Catholic school that was being blamed for taking a lot of the children. Um, I can pass that article for you. It's, it's digestible within a couple of minutes, but it's a really interesting cross section because you have a lot of the language used at the time to try to understand and how to separate the, uh, that concept of it being resistance in some form. Um, but um, in regards to burning churches um, and the history of that, but uh, yeah. Anyway. I, I've got a thank you for you. You queued up a Seashell story that I love about um, uh, about this issue. Um, I uh, so I was on the uh, board of directors of uh, Save Georgia Strait Alliance when it was a different sort of organization. Now, of course, like all the blue chip environmental organizations, it's a state controlled quango, but. Uh, at the time, it was a federation of all of these local membership-based environmental groups around the strait. And it was an incredibly exciting thing to be part of. All of these local environmental groups all coming together around the level of uh, docks and poisoning of the strait. Now, of course, you can't even talk about dioxins and furans uh, because um, they affect endocrine systems and it's transphobic to talk about people's endocrine systems now. So uh, we're just gonna leave all that. But this is a great time. Uh, I ended up in charge of booking the meeting spots because the first meeting I went to was in the abandoned Half Moon Bay Elementary School, which had been turned into a bird rescue facility. So there were all of these feral birds uh, shitting on us uh, constantly and attacking us in this meeting. So anyway, I, I fixed the meeting problem. That's what got me a seat on the board. So <laughs> the um, we did 
this big gathering in Seashelt where we'd figured out, right, you know, world peace had happened and the uh, marijuana legalization movement realized if we just schedule our parade on the same route on the same day, it looked like a lot of people want to legalize dope because people really like going to the Vancouver Peace March. Um, we tried a similar strategy. Frank Ney was finally out of power. And so the Nanaimo bathtub race had ended. And we thought, well, what we'll do is we'll like, we'll co-opt the bathtub race and make it an ecological thing. And people will swim and boat across the strait. They'll be these fit fucking environmentalists, kayaking, you know, all that shit. And so we did that. And the terminus of the race was seashell. And I was actually at the first attempted land acknowledgement in British Columbia. I can remember this, right? Land acknowledgements today, of course, are completely disgusting. They're American Thanksgiving. It's white people welcoming themselves to land. We used to at least find like some random indigenous homeless person on the street and give them 50 bucks to welcome us. Like that was, that was the 90s though. Like at least we were helping someone. Um, now, of course, we're, we're running the whole thing. But uh, the, the, so we... So my, my friend Ernie, who was running Save Georgia Straight Alliance, said, Dad, we, we're going we're gonna to ask the Seashell Nation um, to welcome us to this territory. That's awesome. That's awesome. What a great thing to do. 31 years ago. Um, and so this um, elderly indigenous woman took to the stage. And she had the really impressive, very long braid and the whole outfit, the whole neo-traditionalist outfit that you have to wear when colonists are giving you money to cosplay the past for them. And, uh, but she, she had a plan. She said, I understand that you would like me to give you a spiritual opening on behalf of the Seashell people. All right, everyone, I want you to bow your head. Repeat after me. Hail Mary, mother of God. <laughs> and she forced this whole field full of hippies to do Hail Marys for her until she was fucking done. <laughs> and uh, I think that uh, it's so one of the reasons white people had to take over land acknowledgements uh, for ourselves, because we, we, we can't trust the indigenous people to be, as Thomas King would say, the Indian we had in mind. Uh, other questions, comments for today? The last yeah, thing, um, in an oblique way, the story that you just told makes me think of Robertson Davies and the depth Stepford uh, trilogy. Oh yes. I mean it because there's a lot of conjuring in that one, and uh, I don't know that could be in that story. <laughs> honestly, it's really quite funny. <laughs> well, I I I uh, okay. Um, well, Sandra's heading out, but she's not leaving early because um, this is two hours and I have to go and visit uh, Don Todd now. It's my other Wednesday activity. So um, I'm going to have to let you all go. 
Uh, I'll see you on Monday. And uh, as ever, this has been a pile of fun. Thanks, Stuart. As always. Bye. Thank you. Bye, everybody.